Amen. Go ahead and grab your seats. And as you're taking your seat, you can grab your Bible or your whatever device you may be using and open up to Joshua chapter 5. We're going to be looking at the end of chapter 5 and chapter 6. And uh, we're going to be kind of on the heels of last week, building off of that as we march through the book of Joshua. Last week we saw how important mission preparation is. Uh, There is always the potential for mission failure, especially if we are ill-prepared. So that preparation piece, like we saw last week, is crucial to any kind of success we may experience, especially experience spiritually in the Lord and as a church on mission with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must be properly prepared for battle. But but when the battle begins, when we engage in the battle, there are certain things that lead to success, that guarantee the success of God's mission moving through God's people. A few weeks back, we had our annual vision meeting, and many of you are at that. And there, we we often use that time in the year to remind us not only of what God has done in the life of our church in that past year, but where we're going, where we're moving forward, and how God is continuing to advance the mission of the gospel through our church. So we talked at that AVM meeting a little bit about success. What does success look like for the believer? What does success look like for the church of Jesus Christ? And that's an important question for you to be able to answer in your own life this morning if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. How do I define success? And I quoted this statement, um, dealing with failure, because I think it's helpful for us to adjust our understanding of success. Let me give you this, this statement. Failure is being successful at the things that don't matter. Failure is being successful at the things that don't matter. In other words, you could be successful in a lot of good things, You may have a a great marriage. You may have a great career. Your kids may go and and get uh, great educations. You may have lots of money in the bank account, lots of possessions. You may look successful from a worldly standpoint, but you can be failing at all the things that truly matter for eternity. As a church, we may look successful. Churches, I, I said this in our meeting, churches often measure success by buildings, bodies, and bucks. Those tend to be the three things people look to. Buildings, not a problem for us. But you can look around and say, well, there's, there's people here, therefore it must be successful in God's eyes. Or, or look at the size of the budget that we have and, and the, the weekly offerings we're taking in. And, and doesn't that speak to success? Well, maybe, but maybe not spiritually. In God's eyes, success often looks very different than it does in our eyes. And let me frame it like this. Success is not failing at what matters most. And specifically for the Christian, success is not failing at what matters most to God. What does matter to God and what matters most of all is the mission that God has called us to, to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ from nation to nation, person to person, souls saved, people spending eternity in the presence of God, rescued from hell and the grip of Satan. 
And here, in the book of Joshua, we're reminded of the mission of the church as we look at the mission of Israel. We've looked at this parallel in the past weeks, that, that Israel advancing into the promised land is a parallel for us. It's analogous to the church advancing the gospel across the nation. And so as we look at Israel here advancing into the land on the mission of God, we see four keys that guarantee spiritual success. Four keys that guarantee spiritual success. First, notice this, spiritual success is guaranteed when we embrace his unrivaled authority. We're going to look at the end here of chapter 5, a fascinating account as Israel has prepared to enter the promised land. Look where we find ourselves in verse 13. It says, when Joshua was by Jericho, remember they've crossed through the Jordan River, he lifted up his eyes and he looked and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and he worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. First of all, what's Joshua doing here? Think about this. They've crossed over the Jordan River and they're preparing for battle. And all of a sudden, before the battle, it seems like Joshua has gotten close to Jericho. In other words, he's thinking about the plans. He's thinking about the battle. And he's, he's supposed to be this military commander. And so he's scoping out the scene for himself. He's got the details from the spies. He knows what they've said. He's heard the word of the Lord about the victory that's coming. But he wants to see for himself. And as he gets close to the walls of Jericho, perhaps he's spying. Maybe it's dark. He comes across this mysterious figure, somebody who looks like a man, and he has a sword drawn as if he's ready for battle. And I love the question that he asks. It's the natural question when you're preparing for battle and you come across somebody with a sword in their hand. Hey, are you on my side or are you on their side? Because if you're on their side, we got to solve this pretty quick. And I love the response even better. No. No, I, I'm not on their side and I'm not on your side. In fact, you say, you say why, why does he answer like that? The, 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 the point is here, listen, Joshua is asking the wrong question. The question is not whose side are you on. The question is this, who's in charge? Who's in charge of this battle? In other words, I'm not here to take sides, but to take charge. Say, who is this mysterious figure? Well, scholars debate who this is, whether it's an actual angel, it's possible, whether it's a Christophany, it's a pre-incarnate Christ who's there, or whether this is a theophany, this is a manifestation of God himself. I think it's probably that. It's a manifestation of God himself. He appears to be in human form. Whoever he is, he comes, notice this, as the supreme authority on behalf of God. And he, not Joshua, is ultimately leading the charge. And what's Joshua's response? That's the question we need to look at carefully because this is how we are supposed to respond. He hits the ground. 
He does a spiritual face plant. He realizes that he is in the presence of someone so much greater than himself. He hears the response, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. And I love this. Not only does his face hit the ground in humility, it hits the ground in worship. He understands the appropriate response when encountering God. It is worship. And not only that, he moves quickly from worship to wanting to hear from God. What is it that you have to say to the servant of the Lord? Tell me what it is you want me to do. This is so instructive for our hearts. This is what happens to those who embrace the unrivaled authority of God himself. They hit the ground in worship. They long to hear from God. They want to hear the voice of God. They want to know the instructions of God because they want to faithfully follow God and be blessed by God and experience the success that only he can grant. Now, I want you to notice there are some interesting parallels. We've noticed this throughout the book of Joshua already between Joshua and Moses Joshua is being held up as a unique figure. He's following in the footsteps of Moses. And so the events here should actually trigger in your mind, shouldn't they? An event that happened in the life of Moses back in the early chapters of the book of Exodus. When God was likewise preparing Moses essentially for battle to go into Egypt and to rescue God's people or to lead the charge, so to speak, on behalf of God. And in that time, we know that Moses encountered God through a theophany in a burning bush. And the same words that were said to Joshua were said to Moses, take off your, your sandals for the place you're standing is holy. You're in the presence of holiness. I was going to wear sandals this morning as a vivid illustration of that, but I figured that yeah, might be a little chilly. Grass looks a little wet. Some of you have them on. You might consider taking them off as a powerful reminder for you this morning. Listen, that in this moment, in this moment, as the people of God, listen, you are in the presence of God himself. God dwells in the midst of his people, amen? God dwells in his people. What a privilege and joy to know and to be reminded of that. But you see, like the Exodus event with Moses, God is communicating much of the same things to Joshua right here. He's telling him, I'm in charge. I have called you. And maybe most importantly of all, listen, I am with you. You want to know what he's telling Joshua? Listen, I know the battle before you looks great, but you want to know the reality? Joshua, you're not going to win this battle. I'm going to win this battle. This isn't about you, Joshua. It's not about what you think you can do for me. This is about what I'm going to do through you. You need me, Joshua. And all I need from you is your total and absolute submission and surrender to the authority I am over your life. In the military... They refer to this kind of thing as a chain of command. There is a line of authority and responsibility through which orders are passed and by which the mission is accomplished. And without a proper chain of command, where there's a breakdown in a chain of command, the very mission itself is at risk. 
failure is almost inevitable where there is no clear lines of authority. And let me just say this to you, Christian. Failure is inevitable in your life if you do not understand the clear chain of authority in your life. That God is supreme, that God is the authority, and your responsibility, like Joshua, is simply to say, speak, I want to hear from you. I am your servant, and I will do your will your way. So let me just ask you, Christian, it's a good time for some heart examination. What is your reaction to the authority of God in your life? How are you right now responding and reacting to the authority of God over your life? Are you allowing God to have command over your life, over your actions, over your thoughts, your attitudes, your behaviors, your decisions, every area of your life? Some of you this morning, you're here, and I thank the Lord that you're here, but you're choosing to ignore God's authority in your life. You're simply wanting to go about your life and maybe give lip service to the authority of God over your life, but you're living your life as if you're the supreme authority. You're the one in charge. And you're not really that concerned about what God may or may not have to say about how you're actually choosing to live your life. You're just kind of ignoring it. Your your, your Bible is collecting dust on the nightstand. Some of you in here today are further down the path than that. You're resisting God's authority in your life. It's not that you've, you've heard it and you, or, or you're not being willing to hear it. It's just you've heard it and you're resisting it. You know. You know God is pressing into certain areas of your life. You know he's speaking directly to you and you're, you're pushing back kind of against it. You don't want it infringing upon your life because you know that it will actually change the way you're living your life right now. You're going to have to give some things up. It's going to be hard work. It's going to be costly Some of you are further along than that. You're actually living in rebellion to God's authority over your life. I mean, you're here right now begrudgingly. You're listening to God's word, but you're not listening to God's word. In fact, you are willfully hearing God's word from a number of different sources in your life. People are speaking into your life. Your spouse is speaking into your life. Friends are speaking into your life. Small group leaders or pastors are counseling you and trying to help you. And you are actively rebelling against the authority of God in your life. And it's an incredibly dangerous place to be. And what God says to you, regardless of where you are along this spectrum, maybe you're somewhere else. He says this, the key to spiritual success lies right here. Listen, in embracing and submitting Submitting to his authority over your life. All true progress and growth in the Christian life begins there. That is where the Christian life begins. It is in recognizing you're not the authority. God is. And when you bow the knee to him, you are then freed to not only grow and excel spiritually and grow immensely, but you're enabled to be used by God in powerful ways as we see God using Joshua here in this text. Get low, loved ones. Get listening to the voice of God, the word of God in your life, and then get going on mission with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Spiritual success is guaranteed when we embrace his unrivaled authority. Secondly, when we trust his unconventional strategy. That's right, when we trust his unconventional strategy strategy. You'll notice the next verse, verse one of chapter six. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. They're terrified. They see them there across the Jordan. They went through on dry land. There's fear and they've shut themselves in. 
none went out and none came in. This is a siege situation. And the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have, listen to this, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. This is such a, an important statement. I want you to notice this, first of all, the very first verse, it, it kind of seems out of place. It's, it's in the middle of this section where God's now going to give, through the commander of the Lord's army, he's going to give the strategy to Joshua. But, but he interjects for a moment to say, hold on a second, let's not forget about the scene. There's this massive city and these crazy walls. The city looks impenetrable. The obstacle is unbelievably difficult. And the point is this. Listen, before you hear the unconventional plan of God, you have to be reminded that there's no human strategy that is going to accomplish the mission of God. This is about God's strategy. And so God wants to remind us through this picture of the obstacle in front of us that only his power, only his strategy will work. Now, I think this is really helpful just to pause for a moment. I, I don't know what you're facing in your life right now, but I find that it's helpful to kind of draw some analogies from something like this. Let, let's call it the, the, the walls of Jericho that you might be facing in your life. Maybe it's, maybe it's a massive sin issue in your life that is a constant battle and a constant struggle. It seems totally insurmountable. Maybe there's an incredible struggle in your marriage or in your home, or with your children. Maybe there's a, a massive struggle just in terms of your evangelism and seeing people you know and love come to Christ, and you just you keep feeling like you're bumping up against the wall and you're not making any progress. Listen, sometimes God allows there to be incredible obstacles in our life to remind us that the solution to overcoming the obstacle is not our own wisdom and ingenuity. It is our trust in his purposes and in his plan. And it is to lean back into the way he calls us to handle these situations, not into the way we choose to or want to handle these situations. You say, well, why, 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 do we, like, why, why do we have to say that? Because this is what our default position is, isn't it? Our default position isn't when we encounter obstacles in our life. Okay, God, how do you want me to handle this? What does your word say about this? Our default is this. I've got this. I'll figure this out. I'll come up with a plan. We need to run back to God's plan, no matter how unconventional they are. And believe me, they're always unconventional in compared to human plans. They don't, they don't look the way we would make them look. They don't work as fast often as we would want them to work or as efficiently. That's because... In the process, God is trying to build our trust. As a church, we understand the great mission God has called us to, reaching the lost. And God wants to constantly remind us, listen, that reaching the lost, reaching the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't about our strategies primarily. And I'm not saying that we don't employ certain means to accomplish these things. We certainly do. But ultimately, we rest in the purposes and plans of God. And verse 2 is the key to seeing how this works out. Think about what he says. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand and its king and mighty men of valor. He says, listen, I've already got this figured out. The victory's as good as done. 
I've taken care of things, Joshua. Your objective now is simply to believe and trust that I know what I'm doing and my way is better than your way. God wants to ingrain in their memory in this very first victory across the Jordan that he is the one who accomplishes the victory. It sounds oddly similar to me to Matthew chapter 16, 18, where Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I've got this church. I know what I'm doing. I've already devised the the strategy and the plan. You simply need to, in submission, follow the plan that I've laid out. Now look at God's unconventional strategy. We know this, right? Basically, march around the city. You shall march around the city, verse 3, all the men of war around the city once. You should do this for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, they shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. That's it. That's the strategy. Now, I know that you've been in Sunday school, most of you, a long, you know, long time ago for some of you, but some of you heard this story a hundred times over, and you're like, oh yeah, I know this story, but I need you to consider how crazy this strategy actually is. This is not a good military strategy. It's not. You will never find this strategy documented in the history of the world apart from God in the Bible telling his army what to do. In fact... It almost seems like God has devised this strategy to make the nation of Israel look silly. Can you imagine what the inhabitants of Jericho must have been thinking? They're they're terrified. And all of a sudden, Israel marches around the city pretty quietly, pretty peacefully. Day one, done. Day two, done. Day three, day... By the time they get to day five, they must have been thinking, these people are crazy. They don't know what they're doing. What are we so afraid of? This just doesn't make sense. But that's kind of the point. God has a way of making us look weak. In fact, some of the the best theology uh, for us comes from our children's songs that we sing to our kids. Some of you know um, Jesus Loves Me, right? That's a pretty popular one. You guys know the song, Jesus Loves Me, This I Know, For the Bible Tells Me So. That's great truth there, by the way. Little ones to him belong. Help me figure this out. They are what? Weak, but he is what? Strong, you see? That's the point. We look weak. But in us looking weak, by the way, we don't just look weak, we are weak. This is a reminder of of how little this actually depends upon us. And and by the way, they are going to have a part to play. There is human responsibility. They will charge into the city and fulfill uh, the requirements that God has laid upon them, the commands that he calls them to 
to military battle. But for now, the point is so clear. This is about God. God's strategies are designed, listen, to remind us we are weak and to show us over and over and over again that our God is a strong and mighty God. And what they don't see, the inhabitants of Jericho, is that God himself is with them. That's the emphasis here. It's not on the the ferocious army, but on the Ark of the Covenant. Did you catch that? Get that Ark of the Covenant up. Get the priests carrying the Ark in front of us. This is how we win the battle. This is the point of our victory. God will accomplish the victory. By the way, that's why the number seven is emphasized throughout this passage. So many times, over and over here, seventh, on the seventh day, march around the city seven times, seven priests. That is an incredibly important number. You see, it's the number of divine perfection and completion. It's reflecting and reminding us of the seventh day of rest at the end of the six days of creation. And let me just remind you, as we've seen throughout this study in Joshua, that the book of Hebrews tells us that the point of this passage, the point of what Joshua is accomplishing in this conquest, is all about rest, and it's pointing us towards a future and final day of rest that is accomplished only through the victory of Jesus Christ. It's holding up that victory for us. And so this seventh Repetition is a reminder. Listen, God is the one who brings the rest. God is the one who gives the victory. It is God's completion that we are waiting for. So after the six days, you're going to do seven final laps. The seven priests carrying the ark. The trumpet is going to blast. The people are going to shout. And the walls are going to come crashing down. By the way, the collapse comes upon these walls as if it was coming from above. I want you to think about this. Not from outside the walls, not like people pushing in, but God himself pressing in and pressing down upon the enemies of Israel and the enemies of God. They have shut themselves in against God and God will bring great judgment upon them. Church, you have to hear this. The point of this is simple. God wants his people to trust his plan. In fact, listen to Hebrews 11.30. It says, by faith, that's trust, belief in God. The wall of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. God's plans always look unconventional. We see this even in the gospel, don't we? The gospel itself is a reminder that it's not about anything we could do. It's only about what God could do for us. Our salvation, like Israel's, requires not primarily our effort, but our faith. We are saved by grace through faith. And faith in his unconventional plan. That's, that's what the gospel is. It's completely unconventional. It's not something that human beings would ever devise. I mean, God taking on flesh, God living a perfect life, God dying a death in the place of sinners, God rising from the grave, and people simply having to put their faith and trust in him instead of do nothing on their own. That's God's design. Human beings don't do that. Human beings devise plans to get to God. They don't devise a plan where God comes down and comes to get them. 
And yet we know from scripture, this is the only way of salvation. This is the only hope for humanity. It's that God would come up with a plan to rescue us because we were so sinful. We were so wicked. We were so worthy of his divine wrath and judgment that only he could rescue us by his power and his might. We are far too weak to be saving ourselves. Amen, church? But God is far stronger and greater and able to save to the uttermost. Not only is the gospel weak, we are weak. 1 Corinthians 1, 20 through 25 makes it so clear that God has made foolish the wisdom of this world that it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Jews look for signs and Greeks demand wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. It's folly to the Gentiles. We carry an unconventional message, but it's the only one that can save. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So much of the church, listen, has this backwards. The church around the world. We think the best strategy to reach the world is to be like the world. We think that if we can just be cool enough and attractive enough, maybe we can win people to Jesus Christ. This is the opposite way of the gospel. We think we can be strong enough and smart enough and strategic enough. God says no. He calls us to be a peculiar people. We're supposed to be weird. Think about it. If you're in Christ today, you are weird. You're on a field on a Sunday morning, reading an ancient book you believe was written by God, singing songs about blood and crosses, praying to a God you cannot see. Believe me, most of the world thinks you're weird. Get used to it. Why? Because it's essential to trust his unconventional strategies. The gospel has saved us. It's the means by which he will reach the world through us. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. Not saying we can't be strategic and thoughtful and careful, but we don't reinvent the wheel. God's plan has always been, listen, to take a weak people, a people who look foolish to the world, and to use them, listen, to use them to turn the world upside down. That's how the church began. That's how the church will come to a close when Jesus Christ returns. Trust his unconventional strategies. Guarantee success when we trust in his strategies, not ours. Watch the gospel advance through us as we do so. Next, spiritual success is guaranteed when we display his unparalleled glory. Now this next section, verse 8 through 21, the focus of verses 8 through 14 are on the detailed execution of the commands in preparation for the fall of the city. Basically, Joshua reiterates the commands, the people follow through. The commands are then described in 15 through 21 in greater detail. And in these verses, 15 through 21 specifically, we see even more precise commands and instructions given about how Israel is supposed to proceed. I want to look at this. So drop down 
to verse 15. On the seventh day, they rose early at the day of dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priest had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing of destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. They devoted all the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. Now the purpose of this parade around the city, again, it's to focus on the ark and therefore on the Lord so that both Israel and Jericho will know who is ultimately responsible for what is about to happen. And the point of that is so God gets all the glory. This is about the glory of God. Make no mistake about it. This entire episode, ultimately at the end of the day, is all about the glory of God. Every area of obedience in the Christian life is ultimately about striving to display the unparalleled glory of God. It is a demonstration that the driving motivation of our lives is God's glory. So let me ask you this morning, do you care about God's glory? I mean, do you really care about God's glory in your life? You say, how do I know? How do I know I care about God's glory? Here's the simple answer. Look at the obedience in your life. Look at your obedience to the word of God. And that will tell you much about whether or not you truly care about the glory of God. Jesus kind of put it like this. If you love me, you will keep my commands. If you care about my glory, my honor, if you truly love me, my glory... You'll keep my commands. But look what God commands them to do. Devote this city to destruction. Now, admittedly, listen, this is very, very hard for people to stomach. Both believers and unbelievers alike have have struggled and tripped over this part of the book of Joshua and this part of the Bible. I get that. But the Bible is actually clear that what's taking place here is not only justified, it actually is bringing great glory and honor to God himself. In fact, in Romans chapter 9, I know some of you, you expressed a lot of uh, 
um, let's just say frustration that I, I, I finished before the summer, Romans chapter 8, and I didn't get into chapter 9 through 11 of the book of Romans. You've been like chomping at the bit to get into that. So I'm going to give you a bit of a foretaste of that here because Paul in Romans chapter 9, he actually addresses this issue at a broad level. And he kind of unpacks a bit of the theology for us to help us understand why not only is this kind of conquest and destruction of these individuals okay, but it's right and appropriate and it actually is a means by which God gets glory. Paul says this in in chapter 9 of Romans, verse 23 to 24, he said, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. You see, we need to be reminded here that God is sovereignly choosing in this moment of history, in the nation of Israel, in the Canaanites' history, He's sovereignly choosing to pour out his divine judgment on a wicked nation that has long chosen to reject him as God. Israel in this moment is becoming the weapon of God's wrath, the weapon of God's judgment against a people who are deserving of God's judgment. You have to get that clear in your head here. This is not an innocent group of people. This is a people who sacrificed their babies to the god Molech. This is the people who worshipped false gods through sexual immorality and all kinds of wickedness. This is a people who have lived rebellious towards the God who created them for hundreds and hundreds of years. The only mystery here is the fact that they have been allowed to exist for this long in the first place. They would not reach out to God for rep- in repentance and faith and finally, finally, God had said enough. And I want you to notice that they were given these precise commands, very clear instructions, and they followed them to a T. And let me just remind you, church, that this is a test of their desire to display God's glory. This is a display of their zeal for the glory of God. We will obey every command. We will do what he calls us to do. And willingness to obey God in every area of your life is an opportunity to display your zeal for his glory. This will lead either to success spiritually or failure spiritually. And God's mission always advances through the obedience of his people, which is driven predominantly by a longing and a zeal for the glory of his name. You know, the New Testament helps us apply Joshua 6 rightly. Um, Thankfully, we are not called to devote people to destruction. But we are called to be devoted to God in such a way that we hate everything he hates. We hate the sin in our lives that put Jesus on the cross. We hate our laziness. We hate our unwillingness to be faithful to him. We hate the things that continually trip us off up and diminish his glory that destroy our witness and our testimony. 
And just like they were called to be exact and precise in how they obeyed the commands of God, listen, loved ones, we too are called to be exact and precise in how we obey the commands of God in our lives from hearts that long to please Him and long to display His glory. We're not fighting against people. We are fighting for people. We're fighting for their souls. We're fighting for their eternal rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're not fighting against flesh and blood in this battle. We're fighting against the rulers and the powers, the the, the principalities, the authorities, the spiritual powers that exist in this world. And the weapons of our warfare are not like the weapons of this world. We fight on our knees through prayer. We fight with the weapon of the truth of God's word. We wield the sword of the spirit, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We put on the armor of God and we take the truth of God's word and we smash down every single argument and objection that stands against the truth of the gospel. We let the truth of God be the sword of God that conquers the souls of individuals. That's where our hope and faith is. And as we do that, we display the glory of God. And loved ones, let me remind you, this is the mission of the church. Lost people saved, saved people matured, matured people multiplied, help me out, all to the glory of God. When that is our focus, spiritual success is guaranteed Lastly, we see that spiritual success is guaranteed when we proclaim his undeserved mercy. Rahab comes back to the surface. Verse 22, but the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said to them, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron, they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers from whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundations and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was in all the land. Here is one who fled God's imminent judgment and found undeserved mercy, kindness from God. Rahab with her scarlet cord hanging in the window, her entire family packed into her home. Think about this. The walls come crashing down, but somehow the part of the wall that she lives in stands firm and stable and secure. She is protected by the merciful, gracious hand of God, all her loved ones included. And the author goes to great lengths here. Notice this, to proclaim to us the saving power of God and the undeserved mercy of God. And I want to suggest to you today that we need to follow his example in proclaiming these things. Why? Why should we do this? Why should we proclaim his undeserved mercy Because the destruction of the Canaanites 
is only a foreshadowing of the great and final judgment at the end of the world that we read about in the book of Revelation. All of these judgments, they remind us of what is justly deserved for all of humanity who have rebelled against God, what we have justly deserved apart from Christ. It reminds us, listen, that every day we have drawn breath and enjoyed health has been a day of God's gracious mercy toward us. He is patient, yes, but he will not finally endure injustice and rebellion. He will pour out his wrath, which we richly deserve. But incredibly, incredibly, for all who repent of their sin and trust in Jesus, his finished work on the cross, who look to Jesus and see that God poured his wrath and judgment out upon him, all those who trust in Jesus will be saved. They will be shown mercy, undeserved. But all who reject Jesus and who will not repent and believe will receive the wrath of God just like the Canaanites. We see here the unleashing, yes, of deserved judgment, but we see here as well the gift of God's undeserved mercy. God will not go back on his word. God is gracious to save all those who place their faith in him. So if you are not in Christ today, come to Jesus Christ. And for those who already have come to Jesus Christ, let's again, let's take our cue from the author of the book of Joshua. Let us proclaim this undeserved mercy that we have received and that God extends to lost sinners. We are, after all, ambassadors of Christ. God making his appeal through us, imploring people on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Let us not be ashamed to tell others about the judgment we deserve but the mercy we have received. Let us shout it from the rooftops. Let us shout it in the fields. Judgment is coming, but mercy is here in Jesus Christ. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Church, let us not be known for succeeding in the things that don't matter. Success will be determined by whether we embrace his unrivaled authority, how we trust his unconventional strategy, how we display his unparalleled glory, and how we proclaim his undeserved mercy. This guarantees spiritual success, mission success, his victory advancing through us. May we do this faithfully and at the end of our lives when we stand before our King, may we hear the words, well done. Let's pray.